Well, thank you, Dave, for sharing about uh, all the things going on this month with regard to our missions committee. And speaking of missions, this morning's sermon passage, or actually I should say passages because we're going to be bouncing around a little bit there in the book of Acts, is going to be about some missionaries you may have heard about once before. We're going to be uh, in Acts chapter 13. If you happen to grab one of those guest Bibles, that's page 886. And here in a few moments, I'll be reading a couple uh, verses there and a few more verses a little bit after that. And then a little bit later, we'll be in, in chapter 15. So once you open to chapter 13, just kind of keep your, your Bibles open. And we're going to be bouncing around there looking at the account of Saul, also, who was also called Paul, and Barnabas. And a little disagreement that the two once had. And it's going to take us a few minutes to sort of trace their, their history and and see the development of the situation as it arose. Last week, you may have re- remembered hearing the name Barnabas at one point when we were talking uh, from Acts chapter, end of chapter 4, beginning of chapter 5. Um, he was the one mentioned there at the end of chapter 4 who sold a, a field that he had owned and presented the proceeds to the apostles to meet the needs of people in the church there in Jerusalem. And his name was originally Joseph, but he was nicknamed Barnabas, which means, of course, son of encouragement. And that's an apt description for Barnabas. Everywhere you see his name showing up in Acts, you see him connected with some sort of uh, outreach or encouraging ministry of some kind. Um, You know, when when Paul was was first converted, you remember before he was a great persecutor of the church, and when he was converted, uh, many in the church still feared him. And so uh, whenever he would come to to be a part of the, the fellowship of the people of God, um, there were others who were not ready to welcome him and were, were, or were prepared to see him be a part of, of the group. But it was Barnabas who vouched for him in Acts chapter 9. It was Barnabas who, who came alongside him and said, you know, I, I, can, I can vouch for the reality of his faith and his ministry. Later in Acts chapter 11, Barnabas was sent to encourage the new church springing up in Syrian Antioch, you know, just north there of, Jer- of Jerusalem and Israel. And he was sent up there to, to share the, the good news and to encourage the believers. And while there, he went and found, once again, Paul. And the two of them teamed up in ministry together. And they were a great uh, source of encouragement to the people there in Antioch. And, and many came to the Lord because of their ministry together. Um, later, they were dispatched from Antioch down to Jerusalem to, uh, to carry a, a relief fund that was, that was raised to meet the needs of people during a famine. So you see Barnabas, whenever he's mentioned throughout Acts, it's always associated with, with reaching out and encouragement and, and being used by the Lord. We know that Paul was, was a great apostle. We know Paul was a great preacher and evangelist and missionary. Um, but Luke tells us in Acts chapter 11, verse 24, that Barnabas too was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and faith. And so it was these two together, as we turn to the beginning of Acts chapter 13, that the Holy Spirit chose to be missionaries sent from Antioch to the unreached peoples of Asia Minor. So with that, let's turn to our Bibles and pick up the story here in chapter 13 of Acts, verse 4. So Barnabas and Saul, who was also called Paul, were sent out by the Holy Spirit. They went down to the seaport of Seleucia, And then sailed for the island of Cyprus. There in the town of Salamis, they went to the Jewish synagogues and preached the word of God. John Mark went with them as their assistant. 
Now, you might be saying, John Mark, that name sounds familiar. Well, it should sound familiar. If you've read the Gospels, you have read one that bears his name. He was the author of the Gospel of Mark. He's first mentioned directly in in Acts there in chapter 12 as the son of a woman named Mary, whose house was a a common meeting place for the people of God to gather and worship and pray. In fact, when Peter was miraculously freed from prison, it was to John Mark's mother's house that he went to. So it was, uh, they were a well-known family there in the early Christian community in Jerusalem. We also know from Colossians chapter 4 verse 10 that John Mark was the cousin, you guessed it, of Barnabas. So there's another connection between them there. Now, I'm hearing a lot of popping sound. Am I the only one hearing that sound? All right. Do I need to kill the... You don't hear it. <laughs> Patrick, do I need to stick with the lapel or go to the pulpit mic? He's, he's lost for words. All right. Well, we're just going to carry on. If I get different instructions, we'll go from there. Okay, so Barnabas, the cousin... I'm going to try turning this off. There we go. All right. If that keeps up, there's nothing I can do about it at this point. All right. Dance. That's not going to happen. Nice try. All right. Paul, Barnabas, and John Mark. Now, this mentioning of them here together in chapter 13 is not the first time the three of them have been together in Acts. After the relief fund was delivered to Jerusalem, Paul and Barnabas brought John Mark with them back to Antioch. So he has had some experience with with the two of them in ministry. He's not unfamiliar with with what they're all about. He knows uh, their personalities. He knows their ministry. And he is now uh, going along with them as a part of their ministry. And the three of them are together as they they launch out of Syrian Antioch and they they go uh, across the island of Cyprus. And then at the end of that uh, time on Cyprus, they cross the Mediterranean Sea north to Pamphylia, which is a southern province of Asia Minor. So if you can imagine in your mind the Mediterranean Sea, they've crossed west to the island of Cyprus, and now they've gone north into Asia Minor. And it's there where we're going to pick up the story a few verses down in chapter 13, verse 13. Let's look at verses 13 and 14 together. I told you it's going to take us some time to develop this, but you'll see where we're going here in a moment. Paul and his companions left Paphos by ship for Pamphylia, landing at the port town of Perga. There, John Mark left them and returned to Jerusalem. But Paul and Barnabas traveled inland to Antioch of Pisidia. So there were two Antiochs. There were Syrian Antioch and Pisidian Antioch. Now, we don't know the precise nature of John Mark's assistance. We know he was there long for ministry. We don't know exactly what his role was. Um, I've been on many different sort of ministry tasks over the years, and I've had all sorts of different roles myself. I in fact, the, the week after I met my wife, I was on a, a ministry assignment with a friend of mine who was a, um, a youth evangelist at a camp meeting up in northeastern Ohio. And my job was literally just to be his assistant. I had no formal duties. I was literally there to do whatever I was asked to do, whether it was you know play basketball with the teens or pray with my, my ministry partner you know before he preached or counsel people at an altar I was literally there to do whatever I was asked to do. And I suspect John Mark's role was something along those lines. He's there to be an assistant, there to be a support, there to do whatever he's asked to do. But we don't know why he was there to help them. We also don't know why he left. Okay? We don't know why he left. Now, the rest of chapter 13 and and through chapter 14 deals with, 
you know, Paul and Barnabas' ministry as they continued on north into Asia Minor, uh, eventually making their way all the way back to where they started there in Syria and Antioch. And, um, and that's how those two chapters conclude, which brings us to chapter 15. All right. Now, I know some of you are saying, Pastor Sean, it's taking you a really long time to get to the sermon. Well, that's because the story takes place over multiple chapters. And I want you to know the story before we get to the point. All right. So we've, we've, we're now in chapter 15 of Acts. And that's the chapter you all know that deals with that great event called the Council of Jerusalem. You see, Paul and Barnabas's ministry raised questions all the way back at sort of the, the launching place of Christianity because they were not ministering to Jewish people. They were ministering, they, they did that, but they, what they discovered is that the Jewish people weren't receiving the gospel. So Paul said, okay, we'll go to the Gentiles. And they presented the gospel to the Gentiles and many people were responding to the gospel message. And that raised questions back in Jerusalem. If, if Gentiles are coming to Christ, what then is their relationship to circumcision? What is their relationship to the regulations of the law of Moses? It was a, a, a significant question, and which, by the way, we will dive into that a little more next week with the, the last sermon of this series. But as this issue came up, Paul and Barnabas were sent back to Jerusalem to report what God had been doing. And all the apostles there in Jerusalem and all the elders gathered, and they discussed the issue, and they debated it, and they came to a conclusion. And the conclusion was written down in a letter, and it was sent back up to Antioch. And Paul and Barnabas led the delegation of people back up to Antioch to deliver the news. And the news that was presented there brought great unity to the church. There was great rejoicing. The, the church was built up and encouraged, and their faith was strengthened, and all seemed good and wonderful. And then we come, finally, to our sermon text at the end of chapter 15. Turn there if you would, if you haven't yet. Chapter 15, the end of the chapter beginning there in verse 36. This is after all these things have happened. After some time, Paul says to Barnabas once again, let's go back, meaning all those churches that you and I ministered to in, in Asia Minor before on our first missionary journey, let's go back. In light of all that's going on and all this news that has happened, all these great things that we have to share, let's go back and let's visit each city where we previously preached the word of the Lord and see how the new believers are doing. Verse 37, Barnabas agreed and wanted to take along John Mark. But Paul disagreed strongly, since John Mark had deserted them in Pamphylia and had not continued with them in their work. Their disagreement was so sharp that they separated. Barnabas took John Mark with him and sailed for Cyprus. Paul chose Silas, and as he left, the believers entrusted him to the Lord's gracious care. Then he traveled throughout Syria and Cilicia, strengthening the churches there. Just like last week, as we made our way from Acts chapter 4 into Acts chapter 5, there was great things happening in the church, and all seemed wonderful. God was at work, and then something happened. Something happened. Just like then, it's the same things here. God is working. Gentiles are coming to the Lord. There's great unity among, the, among Christians, both Jewish and Gentile, and everyone's faith is strengthened, and everyone's having a great old time, and it's wonderful to be the church, and then something happens. And Luke, the author of Acts, seems pretty neutral about what actually happened. He doesn't appear to take sides. He doesn't give us really any details about, you know, what exactly the, the problems were and, and who was right or wrong. And there have been many theories over the centuries to try to figure out why 
Why did Mark desert them to begin with back in chapter 13? And there's been all sorts of theories proposed. One is that he was homesick. I think all of us here could relate to that at some level, perhaps, that you know, when you're, you're out of your element and you're with people that, you know, maybe you're not used to being around or you're doing something uncomfortable, you, you feel the, the distance from home and the, you, you miss the comforts of home. Maybe the journey was too hard or too costly for, for John Mark at that point in his walk with Christ. Maybe he was still dealing with discomfort from the, this, this new policy of Gentile evangelism and conversion. We, we know he's not the only one from the, the conservative, you know, Jerusalem class of Christians who, who, who were wrestling with this issue of what do we do with the Gentiles? He was not the first, and we'll see next week that he wasn't the only one that, had, that may have had questions about it. Maybe that's what his issue was. Maybe if we're being a little more gracious to John Mark, we would, we would ask perhaps he was, you know, in disagreement with, with Paul's, you know, sort of seemingly foolhardy determination to travel on despite his problems. You may not have realized Paul was having issues at this point in his life. We know from Galatians chapter 4, verse 14, that when Paul reached sort of that, that region in question, that he was suffering from a, a very debilitating and even perhaps a disfiguring type of disease or malady of some sort. And so maybe John Mark said, you know, Paul, I don't agree with you pressing on, and as protest, I'm not going to go with you any further. Who knows? Maybe that's what was going on there too. But whatever the reason for their sort of division and their disagreement and their separation, and there in Acts 15, I think we can all agree, I hope we all agree, at some level, it's not a very good look, is it? There's something about it that jostles us. There's something about it that makes us uncomfortable, that they, 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 divided so, they were so divided in their opinion on John Mark that Paul and Barnabas split ways and continued on their ministries without the other. And that sound is going to drive me crazy if it hasn't driven you crazy yet. <laughs> All right. We're just going to press on because the, the Word of God will not stop even for bugs in the sound system, okay? We're just going to carry on. Do your very best to focus on me and not on that, okay? I know the guys are working hard to get that ironed out. Was Mark really a deserter? Was Mark really untrustworthy? Or maybe was Paul being resentful? Maybe Paul was being unforgiving. Was Barnabas being a compromiser? Maybe all of the above. Maybe none of those. We don't, we don't know exactly what went on there, but whatever the reason, the disagreement was sharp. So sharp that two godly men, beloved by the church, filled with the Spirit, who had ministered together and traveled together, who had been a comfort and an encouragement to one another, who had gone through things hard and easy, who witnessed great fruit from their time together. It was so sharp it led these two to become divided and not work together anymore. What do you think that looks like to an unbelieving world? What do you think it looks like when Christians have disagreements that cannot be reconciled and go their separate ways? Now, if we look at the bright side here, we can at least say this. At least they, they, they separated peacefully, <laughs> right? I mean, we, we've probably all heard terrible stories of, of Christians who want to settle their issues in the parking lot, so to speak. We don't see any, any evidence or indication of something like that, that they, they didn't come to blows. They didn't go into, into some sort of smear campaign against the other. No, they, they parted ways peacefully, and they each resumed the mission that God had called them to. And in that, we can even see how God, 
in his providence can work even in the midst of our disagreements. He knows that even when we maybe don't see eye to eye with one another, he's still powerful enough and sovereign enough to accomplish his purposes. Even the best and most faithful among us are prone to interpersonal conflicts and mistakes, and yet God can use our disagreements for his work. The ministries of both continued. You could even make an argument that their ministries were multiplied because instead of one traveling pair, we now have two. God knows that we have struggles, and he uses even our struggles and our flawed efforts for his glory. But it raises another question. Yes, they parted ways peacefully, and God, in his providence, multiplied their ministries as a result of it. But is this always how disagreements within churches are resolved? I think you and I both know the answer to that is a resounding no. It is not. I think we all know too well how things can go and sometimes tend to go when there are disagreements in the church. In 2015, Tom Rainer harvested some results of a viral Twitter survey that was circulating the interwebs about ways that churches have fought and divided, and, and he was sort of stunned by some of the results that he came across, and he shared a list of his 25 sort of craziest things he found, and I've gone through his list of 25, and I pulled some of the ones that stood out to me, and, and honestly, if I myself had not witnessed things like this in the past— or have, no, have known people who have witnessed things like in the past, I'd find some of them kind of hard to believe, but they're true. They're true, and I think you will probably relate with some of them. Here's a selection of some of the silliest things that people reported churches fighting over. Are you ready for this? An argument over the appropriate length of the worship pastor's beard. <laughs> Fortunately, Pastor Jeff is clean-shaven, and we don't have to worry about that in this church. Or how about this? An argument in a church vote over whether to keep a clock in the worship center. It's important stuff, isn't it? Or whether to keep the dusty old fake plants on the podium or not. Now, fortunately, we don't, well, we have some, oh, they're not dusty, though. They're not dusty, so we're good. How about a 45-minute heated argument over the type of filing cabinet to purchase? That's an important decision. You know, you have, you have black cabinets, you have brown cabinets, beige cabinets, and they come in different drawer sizes, two, three, four. I mean, this is really important stuff. How about a fight over which picture of Jesus to put in the foyer? Now, you laugh at that, but I'll tell you, in my almost nine years here, I have approached every piece of art in this, on this campus with fear and trembling. You never know. It, everything meant something to someone at some point. I'm serious. Now, we, we chuckle, but you got to be careful. How about some food-related ones? Well, we all can relate to this one, right? Which type of green beans to serve? An argument over which type of coffee to serve. How about the major conflict when the youth group borrowed a crock pot that hadn't been used in years? How dare they? How about the argument over whether to allow... <laughs> All right, this one's so ridiculous. Deviled eggs at the potluck. <laughs> or whether to even use the term pot luck instead of pot blessing. These are actual people's testimonies of things churches have fought over. 
How about the major fight and eventual church split because one member hid the vacuum cleaner? I mean, they're ridiculous. And we laugh and we, we, just, we think to ourselves, how absurd can the, those immature people be? And yet, while we're amazed, I don't think any of us are truly surprised. Maybe there's a few of you in here who are, and I use this kindly, maybe a little more naive. Maybe you haven't been in church a lot. Or maybe you were just blessed to be raised in a church that was mature enough to not deal with these kinds of things. And you're, you're sort of astonished by this. But I, I think a lot of you, myself included, aren't really surprised all that much at all. What kinds of quarrels have you seen in church over silly things? Things that seem so important at the moment. Things and issues that we thought, man, if, if, the, if this doesn't go my way, the world will stop turning. It's that important to me. The, the color that we pick for the carpet. Whether to have chairs or pews in the worship center. What type of songs are we going to sing? Are we going to do... We're going to do the good old traditional songs, that the, the only ones in the, in the songbook that the Holy Spirit actually inspired, or are we going to sing those evil modern songs? Things that in the grand scheme of things don't matter all that much. They might be worth discussing, they're worth having various opinions, but are they worth really fighting? Are they worth going our separate ways over? How many of you here this morning, as you are thinking about these things and reflecting on yourself, how many of you have been guilty participants of childish, self-centered behavior, disagreements, rivalries? How many of you this morning, if you're being honest with yourself and you're listening to the Spirit as He speaks to between the words that I'm saying in in directly to your hearts. I don't know all of your hearts. I know a few of your hearts, but not all. The Holy Spirit knows all of your hearts. And as he's speaking to your heart, how many of you, as you're reflecting on, on what you're hearing, sense that you too have unforgiveness that's, that has taken root at the core of who you are? How many of you are harboring some sort of bitterness or resentment or hostility towards another person, perhaps someone sitting right across the aisle from you this morning? How many of you today refuse to speak to or work with someone else because of a disagreement that you have had or some past offense or maybe even some silly personality, uh, you know, some, some type of, um, what's the word I'm looking for here? Uh, uh, difference. A difference in personality. They're not like you. They don't see things the way that you see them. They don't do things the way that you do them. And because in the past you've had, you've had abrasive contact and it was uncomfortable or they did something that, that irritated you or embarrassed you or hurt your feelings, well, from this point on, I just, you know, we'll just agree to, to coexist, but we'll never have any type of fellowship. We'll never have communion with one another. I'm not there for them and they're not there for me. We are, we'll be in the same space, but we're not part of the same family. And I know there are legitimate reasons to have disagreements with one another. There are legitimate things to draw lines in the sand and, and stand for truth and, and say, I cannot go where you're going. There's a time for that. 
And, and I hope that, that you and I all have the, the backbone and the boldness and the clarity to speak truth, as we said last week, in love into those situations. To say, I love you. I, I, you know, I, I don't wish anything bad upon you, but you are going somewhere. You, you and I are disagreeing on something that is so essential. I cannot follow you where you're going. And I've drawn the line because of my, of my commitment to God and his word. And there are times for that. And I hope you and I have the boldness to, to be on the right side of that line. There are times to leave church if necessary. But I'm not talking about those this morning. That's another discussion for another day. I'm talking about when good-willed people who agree on the essentials, the question is not if differences will come. The question is when they come, how will you deal with it? How will you deal with it? And does it even matter? And I think if we take God's word seriously, we know the answer to that is it does matter. God's word is a great place to start when looking for the type of guidance that you and I need while navigating these issues. The New Testament, repeatedly, I, I wouldn't have enough time here this morning to, to recite for you all the times in the New Testament that the church is commanded to love one another, to truly love each other. Not superficial, you know, statements of, towards each other. We all say, I love, you know, I love this or that. No, to truly love, the action of love towards one another. We're commanded to it time and time again. To live together in peace and in harmony. To settle our differences among ourselves. Not take our differences elsewhere, but to settle them. To deal with them, to wrestle with one another. And the, those issues together the right way. And to rejoice in the truth together. Paul himself will say in Ephesians chapter 4, it's going to be up on the screen there for you. This is the same Paul that, that had a disagreement the same Paul who had an issue with, with another fellow believer, he'll say this sometime later in Ephesians chapter 4, get rid of all bitterness. Get rid of all rage, all anger, all harsh words, all slander, as well as all types of evil behavior. What would happen in, in churches today? If people just started doing that right there. If they said, you know what? I realize that my bitterness and my rage and my anger and the words that I speak about people when they're not around do nothing healthy for the church or for myself. Nothing. They're evil behavior. He says, in all other types of evil behavior. Meaning, your bitterness, your resentment towards other people, your problem with the person next to you for for, for reasons that aren't like we articulated a second ago that really matter. Your problem, your beef with the person next to you or across from you or who used to go here or some long, somewhere along the line crossed you. Your, your unforgiveness at the level of the heart. Your harsh words and tones with people. Your speaking about other people, even when we say, even you know, it's a prayer request. You know, so-and-so did this, this, and this. Let's pray for them. When really the intent of your heart is to slander them, to smear them, to bring them down, to bring some sort of discredit to them. All of those things, the apostle says, are evil. And what would happen if in our churches we put those things away? All of it, not some of it, but all of it, including the things you think you're justified in doing. Put it all away. 
But instead, be kind to each other. Tender-hearted. Forgiving one another, just as God, through Christ, has forgiven you. Boy, that, that right there, those two verses are a great starting point for trying to figure out how do we structure and work out our relationships with one another within the church. Or how about again, Paul in Philippians chapter 2, 3 and 4, another familiar passage. He says, do nothing. <laughs> there's, there's not a lot of wiggle room in, in expressions like that, are there? He's not saying, you know, do most things, you know, don't do most things from selfish ambition or conceit. No, do nothing ever with yourself as the focus. Do nothing ever with your way at the forefront. Ever. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility. Count others more significant than yourselves. Do not look to your own interests, but to the interests of others. And to give us the example of what that looks like in flesh and blood, he points to Jesus. Jesus, God in the flesh, who so emptied himself to the point of giving his life away for the sake of the world. He says, that right there is what I'm talking about. You want to know what your attitude is supposed to be towards the person next to you? What your disposition is to be? You are to have the very mind of that Christ. How much, how healthy would a church be like that? Full of people who are never in it for themselves. They never once look to their own interests, ever, but are always looking to the interests of another. Who are always considering and regarding others as more important than themselves. It sounds so easy, I know, but it, for people who, 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 have, who God is working to, to root out the sin that, that lies at the core of who we are, it can be the hardest thing in the world. When we come to a, a difficult disagreement or something we don't see eye to eye on, to die to myself then, that's the challenge. Or how about what Jesus says in Luke chapter 17? Verses 3 and 4, watch yourselves. If another believer sins, rebuke that person. Then if there is repentance, forgive. Even if that person wrongs you seven times a day and each time turns again and asks forgiveness, you must forgive. I love the beauty of in the, the, the mingling of truth and love in this expression. Yes, rebuke. D don't, don't sweep sin under the rug. Don't pretend it doesn't matter. You, you, if you love the person, you'll speak lovingly and truthfully into their life. Re rebuke that person in their sin, but forgive them. And let your forgiveness mirror and match the very forgiveness of the Father in heaven. How many times have you asked God for forgiveness for something you've done? You probably can't count the times, could you? Go and do likewise with one another. Isn't that what Jesus is telling us? Everything we expect God to do toward us, we are expected to do toward each other. Speak truth and love, forgive. Speak truth and love, let 
release that person from what they owe you. Every time. Every time they ask. And of course, who could forget Matthew 18, where Jesus gives us these beautiful steps for resolving uh, a conflict originating from one brother or sister sinning and violating another. Where Jesus says, when when your brother sins against you, go onto Facebook and tell everyone about how hurt you are. What? Is that what? Oh, he didn't say that, did he? No, I think what he said was, when someone sins against you, you go and call all your friends and tell them the, the gory details of how evil that person is and how mistreated you've been. No, didn't say that either, did he? No, when someone sins against you, you go and you talk to them face to face in private. Talk to them. Or if someone is in sin, you go and talk to them. Not to crush them as a person. Not to bring condemnation or judgment onto them. Not to to embarrass them and make them feel less than you. You go to them to restore them. To save them. And if they don't listen to you, you go and get a couple trusted people to come and, and maybe they'll listen to a group of people. Maybe it takes more than your voice. Maybe you're not a trusted voice in their life. Maybe two or three or four others need to be there to, to add weight to, to, your, to what you're saying to them. To let them see that what is happening here cannot be dismissed. It cannot be ignored. What, what is going on here matters for your life, for your family's life, for the life of the church. And if they don't listen to you then, then you, you do what you have to do as a church, as a, commu- as a family, to intervene in this person's life, to save them from the destruction that they're bringing upon themselves. And in my years of ministry, I can tell you, I've never had to go past step one. Not once. That I can remember. It's interesting, isn't it? It's almost as if the Lord himself knew what he was talking about. How much can be resolved in our disagreements and in our differences if we would just sit down together and talk about it in truth and love. So much conflict, so much sin can be avoided and dealt with. So much peace and unity and reconciliation can be found. Last week, I told you the great enterprise of God in this broken world is not merely to save individuals from hell, but to restore communion with himself and with one another. That's God's work in the world. It's to create a new community, a new humanity, a new family called the church. And how we relate, how we get along, how we work together are hugely significant to him. And his word and his spirit provide everything we need to be the people he has called us to be for the sake of his glory and for the salvation of the world. There might be some of you here this morning. In fact, there's enough of you here, I can almost guarantee it. There's someone here this morning with unresolved business with regard to a strained or broken relationship with a brother or sister in Christ. And I want you to hear me. It's not good enough to just sweep it under the rug. It's not good enough to just pretend it didn't happen 
or to leave it in the past. Let bygones be bygones. I'm talking about unresolved conflict, not conflict that happened in the past that you've resolved. Yes, leave that where it is. Let it go. I'm talking about the unresolved business with people with, with regard to a broken or strained relationship. Let me tell you, your lack of forgiveness or your lack of repentance is a cancer to your heart. It is a cancer to this church and its witness to the world. But praise be to God, he provides all that we need to find real lasting healing and reconciliation. It's beautiful. We've seen the worst of church. Oh, but we, we can experience the very best of church. Because you know, Acts 15, in the disagreement between Paul, Saul, Paul, <laughs> Saul, Paul, and Barnabas over John Mark was not the final word. It's not the final word on their relationship. Several times throughout his letters, Paul is going to mention Barnabas. And especially in 1 Corinthians 9, he's going, to, he's going to mention him in such a way that shows he regards Barnabas as a fellow minister of the gospel with equal credibility and authority as Paul himself. Interesting, isn't it? He didn't shun him. He didn't go out there and discredit him in some, him in some way. He didn't just forget him and just leave him out of, of his correspondence with the, all the churches he ministered to. No, there's a, a, a holy, meaningful mentioning of Barnabas throughout the letters of Paul that I find beautiful to me. But even more than that, some 17 years after Mark first deserted them at the port of Perga, Paul made this request of his protege, Timothy. And I'm going to turn there. You don't have to turn there if you don't want to, but 2 Timothy uh, Chapter 4, verses 9 and 11. Listen to this request that Paul makes of his protege there. 17 years later, verse 9 of chapter 4. Timothy, please come as soon as you can. Demas has deserted me because he loves the things of this life and has gone to Thessalonica. Crescens has gone to Galatia and Titus has gone to Dalmatia. Only Luke is with me. Bring Mark, bring Mark with you when you come, for he will be helpful to me in my ministry. Man, forget Demas. <laughs> he loves the world too much. Avoid Alexander the coppersmith, he'll say in verse 4. I just wanted to say Alexander the coppersmith this morning. It's such a fun thing that rolls off your tongue. Avoid him, verse 14, he's opposed me at every turn. It's like he's listing all the people that are not helpful to him or have stood in his way or have gone somewhere else and are out of reach. No, bring Mark and my coat and my books and papers, he'll say. Those are important to do. But Mark, the very same one who abandoned me all those years ago, who is now a help to my life, or as he says in Colossians 4, a fellow worker, a comfort, an encourager in my time of need. The one who, when we were both younger and less mature and still working things out, I didn't want anything to do with in my time of ministry. Oh, now as I approach my time of death, 
He's the one I want by my side. What a beautiful testimony of the power of God to bring real reconciliation to people who disagree. And I hope you find that to be a great word of hope for us today. That yes, the church, this church, that church, every church, it's full of people who are at varying points along that spectrum of maturity. But all of them are works in progress. And and fortunately, because of God and the power of his word and the presence of his spirit, the church can be a place where stressed and broken and hurtful relationships can actually be mended in real time and space. And over that span of time between Acts 13 and when Paul wrote his letter to to Timothy, somewhere in there, one of these guys grew up. (laughs) Maybe it was Mark. Maybe he was just a kid who disappointed Paul and had become finally a man of integrity. Maybe it was Paul. Maybe Paul grew up. I mean, surely he, he hadn't arrived when, the, when he was first converted. He, he needed discipleship. He needed to grow. He needed to learn. And, and just like you in here, different ages and different points along your walk with God, those of you who have walked with God longer, just by virtue of your, your longer relationship with him, with him, you've come to a deeper place of, of, of knowledge of God and wisdom of the things of God, and you have a deep, perhaps even a deeper intimacy with God just because you've grown over time. And maybe Paul grew up a little bit. Maybe Paul finally took to heart some of those things he was writing to all those churches. Ephesians chapter 4. Philippians chapter 2. Or how about here in Colossians chapter 3? Listen to what he says here. Since God chose us to be the holy people he loves, you must clothe yourselves with tenderhearted mercy, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Make allowance for each other's faults. Was Paul doing that at the time of his disagreement with Barnabas over John Mark? Maybe, but maybe not. And forgive anyone who offends you. Remember, the Lord forgave you. And so you must forgive others. And above all, clothe yourselves with love, which binds us all together in perfect harmony. And let the peace that comes from Christ rule in your hearts. For as members of one body, you are called to live in peace and always be thankful. I'm going to go out on a limb and suggest that both of them grew up in that 17-year span. Both of them learned to overcome their differences, forgive the past, and focus on the essentials, those things that actually matter in the present. None of us, friends, have arrived, have we? All of us are works in progress. We all mature at different rates, and at some level, well, we probably all need to grow up a little bit, don't we? But let us commit this morning with all that we are as we present ourselves to the Lord to clothe ourselves with love, which binds us all together in perfect harmony. Let us pray. Lord, I I ask, um, according to your grace and mercy and loving kindness, that this message in this morning would be a healing one for someone. That someone here would find 
the weight of past hurt, past offense, present bitterness and resentment lifted away. As they, they open their hands and their hearts and release these burdens that they've been dragging around for years. And I pray also, Lord, that this message in this morning would come as conviction to others of past wrong or present wrong that they've committed, violations against another, whether some great sin or whether just some minor dispute, whatever it is, Lord, may we be a people who diligently seek to preserve the unity of the Spirit, whatever that means, whether it's forgiving or asking forgiveness, whether it's owning up to something and repenting or letting something go. Lord, may each of us do our part to work to be the people you've called us to be for the sake of the world. Lord, I believe it can happen because we've seen it in the Word, in the story of Paul and Barnabas and John Mark. We've seen it in our own lives as you brought reconciliation to many here. And I, and I challenge each, each person here as we wind down this, this service to, to reflect on, on times they've experienced real reconciliation, to share those accounts with others. And Lord, I pray that you would use those as great witnesses to, uh, to the to things that you can do according to the power of your Spirit and Word. Lord, may this be a church of of real peace and real unity, not sweeping things under the rug or pretending differences don't exist, but dying to ourselves daily, having the mind of Christ, putting on the, the new clothes of righteousness that you've given to us to wear, that we could experience the beauty of life and fellowship and communion of the church. Lord, may all these things be so for your glory, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.